This morning, we want to continue our series in Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians. You can look at that on the screen. I would encourage you to keep a Bible open because I'll keep referring to the verses afterwards, even after the words disappear from the screen. Uh, but we're looking this morning at the subject of reconciliation, which is one that is highly relevant to us in a society in which we live in, in which we have a lot of broken and strained relationships. So hear now God's word from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one died has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Shall we pray? Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises that your word will not return to you void. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make good on that promise this morning, that you would fulfill your purposes for this word, for this day, among this group. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we look at this passage, we want to notice uh, several things here. We want to notice the, the motivation, the method, and the message of reconciliation. The motivation, the method, and the message of reconciliation. First, let's look at the motivation to proclaim the good news of reconciliation. Paul continues to try to distinguish himself from the false apostles who promote themselves and are focused on outward appearances, such as letters of commendation. Again, in verse 12 of chapter 5, he says, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and do not not about what is in the heart. Paul's words remind me of, of God's words to the prophet Samuel 
when Israel was looking for its second king to replace King Saul, who was removed. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, we read, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his outward appearance or the height of his stature. King Saul, you might, may recall, was a head taller than everyone else. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but the Lord sees, looks not at outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What motivates Paul? And in asking this, what motivates Paul are the same motives for all Christians to live, to please God, which includes telling neighbors and friends and co-workers about the good news of reconciliation. So what are Paul's motives this morning as we look at this? Well, the first one is this, the fear of God. Now, we didn't read this verse this morning, but we concluded with it last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or whether evil. And then he goes on in verse 11, our first verse this morning. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. In the last year or two, it's become apparent that, that several leaders of at least two large evangelical institutions have been exposed for sexual immorality and hypocrisy, pretending to live according to the standards of the Bible, but in reality, not. Paul does not live this way. He lives with integrity because in part he has a healthy and a holy fear of God, remembering that he and his associates and all Christians will one day appear before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not living in utter terror. He's not living in slavish fear, but rather in a holy fear of God. And earlier he mentioned in this letter to, to the Corinthians, he said, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But this freedom is not a freedom to sin but, and live to please himself, but it's a freedom rather to please God and to obey God. Paul never forgets that he will need to give an account of his life to Jesus Christ on the day of judgment, nor does he want to be a hindrance to the Christians who are in Corinth. He says again in verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our, our right mind, it is for you. So the first motive for ministry and really for life, which is relevant not just for Paul, but for all of us, is a healthy and a holy fear of God. But he gives us another motive for life and for ministry as well. And that motive is this, the love of Christ. We see this mentioned in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. It impels us. And when Paul says the love of Christ, does he mean Christ's love for him? Or does he mean his love for Christ? It could mean either one, but the rest of the verse leads us to understand that it's Christ's love for Paul that he has in mind. Paul and his associates, and by implication, us as well. He says, for the love of Christ, verse 14, controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And teaching and the teaching of the Apostle John also tells us that we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. 
The order is important. God goes first. But let's face it, talk is cheap, and anyone can say that they love someone. Anyone can say they love another person. But actions de demonstrate the reality of our words. And so Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God does not wait until we get our lives cleaned up and back on track before he takes action. He goes first. He shows his love for us. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to make the first move, to take the initiative. He did this with his people Israel, too. He shows his love and takes action by delivering them from their slavery in Egypt before giving them the Ten Commandments. And as we've been reading in 2 Corinthians, we've noticed that sometimes Paul uses the pronouns we and you, meaning we apostles and you Corinthians. But at other times, we seems to refer to all believers in Jesus Christ and not just to the apostles. And so when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, this statement can apply not just to Paul and the apostles, but to the Corinthian Christians as well. And to us, too. Understanding and appreciating Christ's love for us can be a powerful motivator for life and for ministry. Paul uses similar words in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's slow down for a minute. Let's reflect on that, those, these words for a moment. Let them sink in. The Son of God loves not just Paul, not just the apostles, but you and me. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, gave himself not just for Paul, not just for the apostles, but for you and for me. And while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, he did this. And we, if we reflect on this truth and accept and believe it, it has the power to change your life and mine and give you new motivation for life and sharing the good news of reconciliation with others as well. Some of us have grown up in families and churches where one of these motivations may have been stressed more than the other. Perhaps the fear of God and the day of judgment was stressed more than the love of God, or perhaps the love of God was stressed more than the fear of God, but we need both of these motivations. We need to keep both of them in mind and remember them. They're both helpful at particular times in our lives, both the fear of God and the love of God. Well, what does Paul mean when he says that one died for all? Paul is saying that one person, Jesus Christ, died on the cross as a representative for all of his people. And just as the shepherd boy David was a representative of all Israel when he went out to fight Goliath, and he defeated Goliath, who was the representative of all the Philistines, Jesus Christ represents all his people, all who believe in him, Jew and Gentile alike. He died in place of all who would believe in him, and not all people, but those who believe in him and trust in him. And that's how Paul can write that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And Jesus not only died, but he also was raised from the dead. He rose victorious. The two go together. And he represents his people in this as well. 
in the resurrection. So in verse 15, he, he writes, and he died for all that those who might who live might not live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He didn't commit any sins. He died as a representative for those who would receive his sacrifice by faith. But notice the change that his death and resurrection bring in verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might not live for themselves, but for him. So my question for you this morning and for myself as well is, who are you living for? Yourself or Jesus Christ? I began to understand some of what this meant, and I'm still working it out in my life today, but in middle school and high school. And if I was, I, I realized as a middle schooler, if I was going to participate, actually it was junior high then, it wasn't really middle school, but if I was going to participate in school dances and be a Christian, there were certain ways of dancing that would not be honoring to Jesus Christ or others for that matter. And so I needed to, to stop doing some of the things that I was doing and stop living to please myself and live to please Jesus. Again, the love of God is what motivates us, the love of Christ to make these kinds of changes. And there are other changes that follow from a decision to live for Jesus in response to his love for us. Consider this in verse 16. Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What's Paul saying here? Once you become a Christian, some of the, the ways of living and some of the ways of thinking and treating people uh, are no longer appropriate. They need to change. We used to regard people according to the values of the world, but now we must think and live differently. 19th century theologian from Princeton by the name of Charles Hodge said, the judgment is not regulated or determined, the judgment of other people, he means, is not regulated or determined by a regard by what is external. It is not man's outward circumstances, his birth, his station, his being rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, that determines our estimate, estimate of him or her. In other words, we must judge people based not on the, the color of their skin, but on the content of their character, as Martin Luther King said so elo eloquently. Think of how Paul viewed Jesus Christ before his conversion. He hated Jesus. He thought he was a false Messiah, and he was determined to persecute and put to death Christians, and he did. Then he meets the risen Jesus while traveling on the road to Damascus, and his life and his perspective on Jesus and others is changed forever. He views himself, Jesus, and others differently. And of course, we have to grow into that in some of our perspectives and understandings, grow into maturity. C.S. Lewis, in, a, in an essay called The Weight of Glory, which that title comes from, from Paul's letter here to the Corinthians, says this. He said, is it a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other destination. 
It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and the circumspection of proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, and art, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is ours, to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, whom we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors and or everlasting splendors. So with faith, we view Jesus Christ. We view all people. We view ourselves as well differently, not according to the flesh, not according to the values of the world. But there's another thing here that Paul gets at, that Jesus' coming will not only change human beings, it will not only change Christians, but it will change the cosmos, the creation, the whole world. Look at what he says in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, in, is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, what is Paul saying here? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you have been born again, if you have received the new birth, if you have been regenerated, you are a new person in Christ. You have a new identity in Christ. When I was in high school, I began to realize, again, it was a process of me coming to faith. I began to realize that my goal my purpose in life of getting the best grades that I could so that I could get, the, get into the best college, to get the best grades, to get a high-paying job and make a lot of money and be successful and happy was really not worth all it was cracked up to be. I'm not saying there was anything wrong with getting great, good grades or working hard, but the motive, who am I doing that for? Am I living to please myself? Am I living for Jesus Christ? So I realized that I, a, a perspective change needed to happen, or it happened to me, I should say, in God's grace, to live for Jesus Christ and his glory and not to live for myself and my glory. And so the values and priorities, my values and priorities began to shift, to change over time. And I became more aware that I need to seek first the kingdom of God and trust him to add what is needed. Money and success were not the end all to be all. The new creation includes more than just renewed human beings like me and like you. It also includes a renewed heavens and earth. So that not only is my life to be changed, but so is the whole world around me, ultimately, when Christ comes again. And so that brings us to the method of reconciliation. The method of reconciliation. What is the world's greatest problem, according to the Bible? That human beings have rebelled against God and are alienated from God. We have a broken relationship with God and consequently a broken relationship with other human beings and with the creation as well. And all that needs to be repaired and reconciled. Well, who makes the first move? Who brings about the needed changes, the reconciliation? God does. Verses 18 and 19. All this has come from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He does it and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what does this reconciliation look like? 
Well, it takes place when two par estranged parties are brought together into harmonious relationship through the work of a mediator. And in the case of our relationship with God, Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. God who initiates and affects this re reconciliation with us through Christ. Well, we might ask, what was the barrier and how was it broken down? It was our sin, our trespasses, as Paul puts it. Trespassing a forbidden border as Adam did in the Garden of Eden. But as each of us have, has done on our own as well. God was reconciling the world to himself. He was the offended party. And yet he was the one who took the initiative to repair the broken relationship. Human beings do not make reconciliation with God. God reconciles with us. But we have to experience or embrace the reconciliation that he offers, even though we don't make it, we don't initiate it. So in what sense was God reconciling the world to himself? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were working and are working together to bring reconciliation to the world. They are removing barriers so that fellowship and trust may be restored, and fundamentally through Christ's death on the cross. And this results in a ministry of reconciliation, as Paul notes in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, we need to ask ourselves, to whom is Paul speaking about in verse 20? These ambassadors may primarily be the apostles and Paul's associates, but there's a sense in which every Christian in every generation functions as an ambassador for Christ. If only the apostles were to be ambassadors, then the message of the good news of reconciliation would have died out when they died. But that's not the case. It's continued. It's still continuing. And what does an ambassador do? He or she represents and speaks on behalf of someone in a position of higher authority. The ambassador does not make up his or her own message. Rather, they bring the message that has been entrusted to them, which in this case is the message, the good news of reconciliation. God has made the first move, and we must make the second move. God calls us, but he expects us to answer. God provides reconciliation, but he wants us to accept it. And for those of us who have accepted it, he wants us to proclaim that good news to others as well. And so Paul writes in verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Again, to whom is Paul speaking when he writes, be reconciled to God? He's saying, in essence, respond to the invitation. But the Corinthian church has already accepted this invitation, though perhaps not every single person, but many have. Is he calling them to repent after wandering? Or is he speaking to a new group within their church who have not yet made an initial response to the good news of reconciliation? Or perhaps both. Can't be quite sure. But why must God punish sin? Why can't he just overlook it if he's a forgiving God? And the answer is that the seriousness of the sin or the offense is determined by the greatness of the person against whom you sin. God is an infinite person. Sin against a holy God is an infinite sin, thus making the individual infinitely guilty. And so how does God address this problem? And perhaps the clearest explanation of the great exchange 
or as another person called it, the sweet exchange. Jesus Christ takes upon himself my sin, and he gives me his righteousness. Listen to how Paul puts it again in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. God made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In what sense does the Father make Jesus, the Son, sin? Well, he doesn't make him a sinner. Jesus never sinned. And some have suggested perhaps he became a sin offering. Um, but there are, other, there are other possibilities as well. Jesus never sinned, so he's not a, made a sinner. And verse 21 is one of those verses in, in the New Testament that tells us that Jesus was sinless. He was the only one, he was the one and only who knew no sin. He was sinless without sin. He always obeyed God the Father and pleased him. He never thought, said, or did anything wrong. He did not become a sinner, nor did he really become a sin offering. One other suggestion has been offered that Christ was made to bear the consequences of our sins. And of course he was. We again see the depth of his love. He was our substitute in my place, condemned. He stood. The great exchange of, of Christ's righteousness is credited to my account and my sin is credited to his account. This is the good news of reconciliation. And our question this morning is, will we receive or embrace the reconciliation offered? And furthermore, if we have already received it, will we reflect on this more deeply and allow it to change our lives and share this good news with others so that we view God and we view ourselves and we view others differently? Shall we pray? Father, we thank you. Thank you for this good news of reconciliation. That we who would be and could be separated from you permanently are able to be reconciled to you because you made the first move. You have taken the, the initiative. You have sent your son. You have not only given us words, but that you've given us a demonstration and power in words and actions as well. So we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that for sending him. We thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we pray that you would help our lives to be changed and informed by the, the motives and motivations that Paul's life was changed by. That we might have a healthy and holy fear of you, always remembering that we're going to have to give an account at the end. But Lord, may we also remember your great love for us demonstrated again, not just in words, but in deeds, that you loved us enough to send Christ to die for us. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray that you would change our lives through this good news and help us to be bold proclaimers of this good news to others. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.